All right, good evening. Good to see everybody. Tonight we're starting and finishing a new book. I'll have you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 John. comes right between 1 and 3 John. You didn't know that. Um, in some ways, I was studying, uh, you know, to put this study together. It, uh, it could really be 1 John chapter 6, because a lot of what John has been saying, he repeats. And, but let me just say this. Whereas John wrote his first epistle to the Christian church in general, he wrote his second epistle to a single Christian family in particular. And John addresses them as the elect lady and her children, verse 1. And uh, some commentators, if you haven't heard this already, some commentators believe that this elect lady isn't a person at all, but John's way of addressing one of the local churches back then. They say he called her, he, they called this church lady uh, because, of course, she's part of the bride of Christ. And so that's why the title lady. And if that is true, then the phrase her children would be a reference to the believers in that fellowship, of course. At the end of the epistle, when, when John says, the children of your elect sister greet you, verse 13, they interpret that as John's way of, of referring to the congregation of a sister church he was currently in town visiting that wanted him to say hi to the folks he's writing to. They knew each other somehow, and, hey, John, tell them we said hi. Oh, okay, I'll write that in there, kind of a thing, you know. Um, now, that, that interpretation is possible, uh, but most commentators say it's, it's unlikely, all right? It's unlikely. I think the best way of interpreting this is that John was addressing this little, little letter. That's what it is, just a little letter, uh, to a Christian family he knew, which consisted of a godly mother and her children, possibly an elderly woman and her grown children. That's what I think because of what John says in a moment we'll look at. But uh, this family uh, had opened their home to the believers uh, as one of the local house churches. Back then, remember now, the church didn't meet in formal church buildings until the 4th century. Until that time, it was house churches, all right? And so this family seems to have opened up their home uh, invited Christians over for Sunday service, and so they became one of these house churches. The reason uh, for John writing this epistle, even though he does say in verse 12 that he really wanted to talk with them face to face. It, it wasn't his intention to put a lot down on paper with ink and parchment, okay? Uh, he really wanted to talk to them face to face, but apparently he didn't know when he could finally get there in person, and he had some things that were bothering him some things that he was concerned about. And therefore, he felt it best to put some things on paper, fire it off to them, and then he could see them later on and they could talk at length, all right? Uh, so that's kind of the, the background. And, uh, but he, uh, he's, he's warning them. He's warning them to be, to be on guard against uh, these uh, heretics spreading their heresies. Uh, these uh, guys were, were invading house churches, going around the you know, the probably Asia Minor, uh, where John was, uh, was uh, writing this from. And, uh, you know, they were going around and invading these house churches in an effort to sow their false doctrine into them. So John is writing to this one particular church and this lady, which I'm sure he knew, he knew her and her family, but he wants to warn her to uh, and spread the word to all the other house churches, no doubt, to be careful not to open the doors of your houses to these individuals, all right? One pastor and author comments about this. He said, and I quote, having left the fellowship of believers, and he quotes 1 John 2.19. Remember 1 John 2.19? Many have gone out from us, but they were never really one of us. If they had been one of us, they would have remained with us, but since they've departed, it proves they were never genuine believers. So these folks went out, all right? They started, they called themselves Christians. Maybe they actually believe they were. I don't know. Um, but they started in the local church, and then they began to spread out. They left to do their own thing. And part of what they were doing was infecting other churches. The author here says that um, these heretics were traveling from church to church, taking advantage of Christian hospitality as they spread their venomous lies. The lady to whom John addressed this letter may have inadvertently or unwisely shown them hospitality. John cautioned her as a model for all believers, 
against participating in false teachers' evil deeds by showing them hospitality, end quote. And so, you know, they capitalized on that. That's how they got into the churches, to spread their doctrine. They capitalized on the love of the church, the, the, the hospitality of the church, okay? The devil will try to use good and, and use it to pervert and to destroy, all right? And uh, so John, ever the realist, loving shepherd, but ever the realist, knew that he had to fire off a letter to kind of uh, tell the churches, look, be on guard uh, for these guys. Don't show them a Christian hospital. Well, you know, I think we just love them. Maybe they'll come around. Hang on to that thought. I'm going to end the study with that very idea, okay? Now, we know these characters were all over the place. We know that uh, Titus, a pastor, faced this same problem of these heretics running around and, and all. And, uh, and Titus uh, faced the same thing in Crete. And uh, Paul mentions this in Titus 1, verses 10 and 11. Timothy faced it in Ephesus, which Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3, verse 6. Now, as we read this little epistle, 13 verses, uh, it seems that as we read it, there are times when John has the congregation in view in general, okay? And at other times, his comments seem to be directed at the Christian family in particular that had opened their home for the people of God to meet in. The fact that John shows so much concern for one little local house church. Now, I, I don't know how big these churches were. Uh, you know, I, I would imagine they couldn't have been more than 20 or 30 people. I mean, most of the houses back in those days were not very big. Now, you had wealthy people, and maybe this gal was wealthy. Maybe the house church was 50 people. I don't know. But, you know, John was an apostle, an elder. I'm sure he was a very busy guy, all right? And yet he took the time, because he's got a shepherd's heart, he took the time when he heard about these flocks being invaded by wolves, it really bothered him, and he wanted to do whatever he could to kind of warn the, the, the sheep, okay? Because again, he had a shepherd's heart. So he starts out with the words, uh, the words, the elder, the elder. Now that's the Greek word presbyteros, and uh, where we get our word presbyter from, or elder, and it could be that John was using it as a title for his office in the church. He was an elder in the church, right? Others say, well, no, it's simply a term designating uh, his advanced age. Uh, in other words, the elder, the old guy. I mean, John was about 90 years old at this time, okay? Uh, whatever, you know, maybe both, I don't know. Uh, so the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and, of course, they, the, the, the truth that bound all these people. Isn't it beautiful in Christ? The gospel binds us all together. You could check out Colossians 1, uh, verse um, 5, talks about the truth of the gospel. But the idea is that, you know, the truth that John was talking about that bound them together in one body, in Christ, was the gospel. Okay, the gospel. And... Um, he goes on, and, uh, you know, uh, whom I love in, in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, the truth of God that abides in us could simply be John referring to the Word of God. Uh, you know, Psalm 119, verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so John could have had that in mind when he talked about the truth that is in us that abides with us forever, the Word of God, that uh, Christians, we hide in our hearts, right? Or he could have been talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, who lives within us and will abide with us forever, or again, both. And I think that, you know, because Jesus is the Word, uh, yeah, I think it's, he probably has both in, in view. Now, guys, the statement to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, that takes us back to what John said in his first epistle, how that the true children of God, you'll know them because they will love the family of God. Turn back to 1 John 3. There's not a whole lot new in 2 John, but 
John is repeating things. A good teacher repeats things to students, but also uh, says the same, you know, truth is truth. You know, you don't, it doesn't change from place to place. So it doesn't surprise us that as John wrote these three epistles, uh, much of what he said was very similar, almost identical at times, okay? But uh, he does make the point in 1 John 3 that one of the proofs that a person is a genuine Christian is they love the brethren. Uh, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. So here it is. One of the litmus tests we have that we know that we're Christians, that we have passed from death into eternal life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, I know we've already talked about this. So I'm not going to talk about it again at length. Just to say that, you know, in the body of Christ, there are going to be brothers and sisters that you have a problem with, all right, that maybe you don't get along with that well. That, you know, you think heaven someday, I wouldn't mind if I'm on the other side of heaven from them, okay? That's not going to be the, you're not going to think that when you get there, okay? Um, look, families can have disagreements. Families can fight. Hopefully at the end of the day, though, we stick together when it, when it counts, all right? I mean, you know, I fought with my brothers, right? Uh, but when somebody came against one of them, I was there because that's how it works, okay? And, um, but I do think that there were, this could be a reference to how you had some of these uh, Jewish believers, quote unquote, they were the Judaizers. Uh, many believe they were Pharisees who had received Christ, but, but, but then taught you had to, a, a person to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses, then they could believe in Christ and be saved. So I don't believe they were saved at all. And of course, the Pharisees hated everybody that wasn't of their own group. So maybe that's what John has in mind, these Judaizers who, uh, you know, they always stuck together and they loved each other but hated everybody else in the body of Christ that wasn't like them. Could be. I don't know. All right? Second uh, John, verse 3. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace with, uh, will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Now, this is uh, somewhat of a typical uh, opening, okay? Uh, we, we, we see many times grace and mercy, or, 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 or mercy and peace, or whatever. He, but here John includes them all, okay? Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, very simply defined, getting what you don't deserve. We don't deserve eternal life, but we get it as a gift through Christ. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. We deserve to go to hell because we're sinners, but because of what Jesus did in the cross, we accept him. We are shown mercy, right? And of course, whenever a person experiences the grace of God, the mercy of God, that will inevitably result in the peace of God, the absence of fear, anxiety, and worry. Here's the thing. In uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul talks about peace with God, right? Peace with God. What is that? Well, that's when you're saved. You're no longer at enmity with God. You're no longer a rebel against God. You have surrendered. You have received Christ. And at that instant, you're no longer against God, and He no longer against you. Now you have peace with God. You're saved. It's, you need peace with God to have the second kind of peace that Paul talked about in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God. Once you are saved, connected to God, that allows the peace of God to fill your hearts and minds and so on and so forth, okay? And that's just, you know, resting in Him. Resting in Him and His provision. All right, verse 4, John said, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. <laughs> Sounds like he's saying, uh, I'm happy that some of your kids are walking in truth. The others are complete losers. No, he's not, no, he's not saying that, okay? It sounds like it, but hang on. I, I rejoice greatly, greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Verse 4, by the way, is the key verse of this epistle. It's the theme verse. Uh, you know, in fact, it seems to be the theme that John carried into his third and last epistle as well. We'll see that when we get there. Very much the same idea, the same heart of John coming through. Uh, I like what Warren Worsby said on this subject. He said, and I quote, John's joy was that the elect lady's children were walking in truth. 
John did not know all of them, however. The literal translation is some of your children. Somewhere in his travels, John had met some of her children and learned. These were grown kids. That's why I say she was older. Her kids were grown up, okay? And John bumped into some of them uh, somewhere in his journeys. And um, and uh, he's, it says that uh, in, uh, in his travels, John had met some of her children and learned of their obedient walk with the Lord. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, he would say in Third John 4. Well, that's the, the heart of any pastor. The greatest joy in ministry for a pastor is just that the people of God walk in truth. You know, that's what it's all for. That, that's, that for me... It, that it validates all the time spent in prayer and study of the word and preparation. If when the word of God is taught, people take it to heart and they walk in that truth, that's all I need. That's all I need. And John's expressing the same thing. He said, the author said, we have no reason to believe that John was hinting that others of the children of her children had gone astray after the false teachers. If by children, though, John, is, John was including the members, all the members of the house church, then it is possible that some of them had left the fellowship and joined with the deceivers, end quote. Okay, just a little background there. But verse 4 again, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. Now, I know you know this, but let me just say it anyways. God's commandments are not optional, okay? They are not suggestions that we are then to take under consideration. They are mandatory laws, mandatory laws that unbelievers violate to their own destruction if they don't repent. And believers bring the chastening rod of God into their lives if they disobey what God has said. Sometimes that chastening discipline can be rather severe if a christian refuses to let go of their sin and repent all right god loves us too much to let us go walking away from him he loves us too much that we would walk to let us walk in sin where we are torn from him which is what sin does so you know it, this is a important issue all right uh and john mentions it here look i have great joy in knowing that uh, your children are walking in truth, whether that's her, her real children or the, just the people uh, going to church in her home. It gives me great joy, John said, um, because I know that God's word is non-negotiable. When God tells us to do something, um, it's for our own good and for his glory. And we must obey. We must obey. Now, if we do not obey as children of God, the first thing that happens immediately is that sin breaks our fellowship with the Lord. Today, I'm afraid to say that I don't think a lot of Christians think too much about that. I think the culture has gotten so bad that if the culture is black and we look gray, we look wonderful. If you stand next to Jesus, the brightest white in the universe, our lives look dirty by comparison. Now, we'll never be as pure as he is this side of glory. I know that. The problem is when we don't take sin seriously and we get into it, we don't realize often. We know what the Bible says. Not, we're not, not that we doubt it theologically. We just don't take it seriously practically. Our fellowship with God is severed. Until we repent, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we are, you know, uh, united with Him again. Again, we're now we're abiding again in Him, right? But when our fellowship is broken, of course, in a, one of the verses that comes to mind, Isaiah fifty-nine: "Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that He cannot save; neither is His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your sins have separated you from your God, right? And your iniquities have caused Him not to hear your prayers." So we understand that. Sin severs our relationship. Our fellowship is broken with God. What Christians don't realize is that should be something that should terrify them. If they understood what was going on, it would terrify them, and they would run like crazy back to God to get things right. 
There is something about being out of fellowship with God. Well, Paul talked about to the Corinthians. He said, look, you got a guy in your fellowship living with his own stepmother. And you're not, you're not troubled by that? You're not upset you're letting it go on like there's no big deal? You need to put him out of the fellowship. If he doesn't want to live like a Christian, put him on the world, apparently, which he loves so much, and let the devil beat him up. And hopefully after the devil pounds on him for a while, he'll come running back, and what he does to repent, you receive him right away. Don't, you know, hold him at arm's length. You get right there and you receive him back. The purpose of discipline is to just break somebody of their rebellion, to bring them back under the family, um, the, the protection of God. But think about it. Put him outside the church because this is the where the Holy Spirit is working. He's protecting. What, what Paul is saying, take him out and put him outside the protective covering of God. And let the world beat him up. I don't want to be outside the protective covering of God. I mean, that should scare us to death to think about that. So John says, praise God, they're walking in truth. Verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Well, turn back to 1 John 2. Because he talks about this uh, in a little more detail. You know, I, 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 you know, I plead with you now, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. But that which you have heard from the beginning, that we love one another, back in 1 John 2, verse 7, we read, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is, is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I'm not going to go into all of that and explain the whole thing again. You can go back and, and listen to First uh, John 2 again. But uh, what commandment is John talking about um, that is both old and new at the same time? The commandment is old in the sense that these Christians had it, had heard it preached to them their entire Christian life. So from the beginning, well, from what beginning? From the beginning of their salvation, they heard this commandment preached to them. So it wasn't new in that regard, okay? It wasn't new uh, to them. But it was new in the sense that Jesus called it new when he gave it to his disciples in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. I'll just read it to you. You know it. John 13, verses 34 and 5, he said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love, and the Greek is fervent love, the word is agape, fervent love for one another. Guys, the word new there does not mean new in time. It does not mean new in time since God had commanded his people to love others in the Old Testament long before Jesus uh, came on the scene incarnated uh, in the womb of Mary. Uh, this Greek word means new in experience, fresh. In the Old Testament, God had commanded his people to love others. Leviticus 19, verse 18, love them as you love yourself. But Jesus here makes everything new when he says, love one another, listen, as I have loved you or in other words love others more than you love yourself it's the idea something that jesus not only taught but also demonstrated by going to the cross and dying for all of us he said in john 15 verses 12 and 13 this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's the kind of love he's talking about. Okay? Back to 2 John verse 5. Once again, now and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Again, speaking of Christians loving Christians primarily. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. 
This is the commandment that you sh that you have heard from the beginning. You should walk in it. Now, we've talked about this, okay? But Jesus took 613 commandments under the law. That was the law of Moses contained 613 commandments under the old covenant. Excuse me, under the old covenant, and he condensed them down to two. We built uh, a four-part series, 2020 vision for the new year, on the first one of the two. He, he said in Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. So he takes 613, condenses them down to two. Here they are. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. In other words, the greatest, supreme. Verse, verse 31. And the second is like it, uh, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. All right? So he takes 613, condenses them down to two. Okay? But then in the upper room, the night before his crucifixion, he gave his disciples a new commandment on the subject of loving others. The, the, uh, the command to love them sacrificially, which means putting their needs above our own. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself means you love your neighbor as equally as you love yourself. Loving your neighbor as Jesus loved us means you die to self to put their needs first. That is a greater love. That's a new kind of a verse. It's love 2.0 in our vernacular, okay? Old Testament love, very good. Nobody can argue with, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself, that's good, okay? Loving people as Jesus loved us, that's much better, much better, okay? Um, John told us in his first epistle that we demonstrate our love for God, listen, by keeping his commandments, but it's also, listen now, it's also how we show his love to others as well. 1 John 5, 2, we'll, we'll quote it in a second. So let me say it again. In his first epistle, John tells us that we demonstrate our love for God by keeping his commandments. Well, if you love God, you, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So that's pretty obvious, right? I love you, Lord, I just don't obey anything you say. So that love's kind of meaningless, all right? It's like a man says, to, I love you, honey. Oh, I really love you. This is, uh, is out playing the field and, 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 you know, seeing other women, right? Violating his marriage covenant. So we do show our love for God by keeping his commandments. But John also tells us further than that, it's also how keeping God's commandments is also how we show his love to others as well. Look, we show our love for others, first of all, through the absence of the negatives, Okay, the absence of the negatives, that we don't lie to them, don't steal from them, don't commit adultery with their spouse, right? That's the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not, all right? That's the, that's the absence of the negatives. That's how you love somebody right off the bat. But um, it's only half of what New Covenant love is all about. Uh, it's not just absence of the negatives, it's also the presence of the positives. In other words, showing them sacrificial love by giving them what they need in the way of food, clothing, shelter maybe, if you can help them out in that way for a time, whatever. Look, we've said this before. Let me say it again. The law can command me not to steal what belongs to you, but it can't force me to share with you what belongs to me. God's love does both. And please don't say, well, if Bernie Sanders was president, then, you know, you know, he would force people to share what, what they have with others. Well, no offense to the Bernie Sanders supporters. I hope, please, God, don't let us have him or any other socialist be president, okay? And I'm going to leave it at that. I'm just saying in God's economy. Old Testament law, thou shalt not steal. Okay, if I feared consequences, I'd obey that. But that wouldn't, couldn't force me to give to you what belonged to me. But God's love does both. The love of God fills my heart. I'm not going to steal from you. And if you need my help, I'll be there to help you. If you need food, I'm there. You, you need a place to stay for the I'm I'm there. That kind of thing, okay? You can look at First John 5 now. First John 5, verses 2 and 3. 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Yes, because they're really rolled up in loving others. And that's not a burden. When you, can, when you love... Keeping laws, that can be a burden. Loving others from the heart, that's not a burden. That's a joy. When God's love is operating, okay? Verse 7, 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. As we said when we studied John's first epistle, one of the most prominent and prolific heresies of the first century was something called Gnosticism. Now, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge. The Gnostics were a group of mystics who prided themselves on having supernatural, mystical knowledge that only they had because of their, the way they meditated and chanted and even fasted. They had techniques by which if they, and they would teach them to you. If you wanted to know God in a deeper way than even the apostles know him, you had to come with us, get into our group, and we'll show you how to meditate and pray and do things that will unlock to you the mysteries of God. Remember Paul talked about this, Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10? Don't let people hoodwink you with this nonsense that, you know, uh, they've got these, these mysteries unlocked and so on and of wisdom. Look, Jesus Christ dwells in you, uh, the God of the universe. You, you have all you need in the way of spiritual knowledge because God resides in you and me, all right? That, but we've talked about that. We studied 1 John 1. But Gnosticism, a group of very uh, elitist thinking uh, mystics, okay? And, um, you know, and people were wowed by these people. People are always wowed by super spiritual people that sound like they have insights into spiritual things nobody else has but them. Every cult has that mindset. That only our group knows the truth. You know, us Mormons were the only... The church was corrupted for 1,900 years until Joseph Smith showed up and the angel Moroni gave him the truth. Okay? And, and this is for every cult out there. The Gnostics were, you know, right there. They were leading the charge because they were right there in the first century. Part of the teachings of Gnosticism grew out of the philosophical question, why is there evil in the world if creation was made by a holy God? If God is holy and pure, morally pure, how, where did evil come from? Because how could that have come from God and he, he, him still be holy and pure was the idea. And these Philosophers pondered that question for a long time, and it led them to a false conclusion. That matter, in other words, the physical universe, was evil. And since matter was evil, it couldn't have been the creation of a holy God. Okay? So what happened? Well, they came up with this ridiculous concoction of a theology, where that the holy, righteous, pure God created an emanation. Okay? Some being called an emanation. The emanation created another emanation, and that another, and that another, until you had maybe a billion emanations. The last one being so far removed from God, this emanation had no contact with God, no fellowship with God, and he was the one that created the physical universe, keeping God separate, isolated, and uh, uncorrupted by the material universe. Okay, that was what they thought. It led to all kinds of other, you know, ancillary theologies. But, but okay, but that was the main idea. That was the main uh, deal. Now, the real problem with the teaching that matter is evil from a doctrinal standpoint was in the way they applied it to Jesus Christ. That's where the church really and this heresy intersected, okay? Because, again, a lot of these folks taught, thought they were Christians, said they were Christians, okay? But the Gnostics reasoned that if matter was evil then Jesus Christ couldn't have come in the flesh because then he would have been evil. So most of them taught he was actually a phantom or a spirit. He, he was not uh, flesh and blood because uh, matter is evil. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He can't be evil. Therefore, he couldn't have come in the flesh. 
The first heresy of the church was not an attack against Jesus' deity. It was an attack against his humanity. A lot of Christians don't realize that. And that's what the uh, apostles, when they wrote the New Testament, uh, you, you, you see it in some of their writings where sometimes it's more obvious than in other places, but they're, they're going, coming against some of these heresies. And that's why John opens up his first epistle with the, these words, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. Of course he was real. Of course he was a material flesh and blood human being. We saw him, we touched him, we gave him hugs all the time. Okay, that was a, a direct, you know, attack uh, from John the Apostle against these, this Gnostic heresy, all right? But guys, as I said when we studied First John, First uh, uh, John, Gnosticism was a major heresy in the first century. And it had made significant inroads into the church, into the church causing the writers of the New Testament to constantly, you see it all over the place, to constantly warn the Christian churches to be on guard against this heresy. It was not the deeper things of God. It was flat-out heresy. And so it doesn't surprise us that once again John warns the leaders of these house churches, this lady in particular. But the idea was spread it around, you know, uh, send this letter out to all kinds of the, all the house churches in the area, warning them not to open their homes to these heretics, again, many of whom claim to be Christians. Verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and a what? Antichrist. It's interesting as we're going to study... Revelation soon. Um, the Antichrist is mentioned, but interestingly, that title is a name that we give him. Now, by inference, yeah, he's included in what John talks about, okay? Um, but he goes by like, I think, 30 or so, 5, 30, 40 titles in the Bible. Most of them have to do with his big mouth, okay? He speaks great swelling words of blasphemy. He's a big mouth, okay? And uh, he's a politician, so yeah, take it from there. Um, but of all the titles he's called by, Antich the Antichrist isn't one of them. That's the one we give him. That's the one we know him uh, most by, that title, okay? And um, let me just say this first, though. Uh, one author said the word deceiver, many deceivers have gone out into the world, John said, verse 7. The word deceiver implies much more than teaching false doctrine. It also includes leading people into wrong living. John has already made it clear that truth and life go together. What we believe determines how we behave. Wrong doctrine and wrong living always go together, end quote. John calls these peddlers of heresy deceivers and an antichrist. He warned us about these antichrists. In his first epistle, chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, chapter 4, verse 3. Let me just say this. They are those who not only oppose the true Christ, but pass themselves off as a substitute Christ. We think of the Antichrist as being uh, the foremost uh, atheist, uh, anti-theist uh, in the world, Okay absolutely not true the word anti could mean against yeah but the greek pref uh, prefix could also mean in the place of it's not that the antichrist is against religion it's just that he is going to invent his own and he wants to be the christ of his religion uh second thessalonians 2 right uh he sits on the throne of god excuse me, he sits in the temple of God proclaiming himself that he is God. That's, and Jesus said in Matthew 24, you see that, run. You Jews were in Jerusalem, Israel, when you see that, when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, declares himself to be God, don't even go back into the house to get your clothes, you run for the wilderness. Run as fast as you can down to the Judean wilderness, ultimately down to Petra, I believe, where they'll take refuge 
uh, with Indiana Jones down there in that area, okay? And that, that's where I believe the Rock City of Petra, that I believe they're, they're going to take refuge there, okay? Um, but this Antichrist, uh, he, he's, he's coming. I believe he's alive right now. For all we know, he could be, you know, the rapture could happen tonight, of course, and then this guy will be uh, right away uh, chosen to be the world leader. The world will be in chaos. Uh, you kidding me? Millions and millions of Christians all over the world suddenly disappear. The world will be thrown into chaos. Plus, there might be other things that happen to coincide, like uh, limited nuclear war, EMP in the atmosphere, something that will world banking system collapse. I mean, it all could happen together, by the way. Throw the world into chaos. They're going to be people have disappeared. Mankind is going to be so uh, uh, shocked and so terrified. They're going to want to do anything that's going to bring peace, including coming under a one world government. Um, all right, you know that. But he's going to lead the human race into the greatest deception and rebellion against God the world has ever seen, leading up to the return of the true Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and take, uh, destroy the Antichrist and his armies and set up his kingdom for a thousand years. Verse 8. He said, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. Look to yourselves. My New King James translates that. It's John's way of saying, watch out for yourselves. Be diligent not to be deceived by last day's deceptions. In other words, be careful that you don't let the enemy trip you up and take you out of the race before the finish line. Paul warned Timothy along the same lines when he exhorted him in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. That doctrine in this context would be the word of God, the true, true doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Timothy, you're a young pastor. Keep teaching the word. Remember, he said in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, correct with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not want to endure sound doctrine. The Greek is healthy teaching. The Word of God is healthy teaching. We have many sick people in the church who have been feeding on unhealthy teaching. It's not biblical Christianity. It's heresies that have come in, been Christianized, placed under the banner of Christianity, uh, and they're making people sick. Some of them are true saints who have bought into some of these heresies. All right? Hang on to that. But Paul warned, if you continue in the truth, let me paraphrase, the word of God, uh, in so doing this, Timothy, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Save them from, was, save yourself? I thought Timothy was saved. It's not talking about save you from hell. Save you from false doctrine, from heresy, from error. The best way to combat error lies is with the truth. You know, if you teach God's truth, pastors, from the pulpit faithfully, the devil won't be able to trip people up with his lies. You'll know the truth, as Jesus said, and the truth will make you free, free from error. Listen, we Christians are not immune from spiritual deception. But we can guard ourselves to a great extent by knowing and walking in the knowing and walking in the truth of God as recorded in his word. If we don't stay in the word, there is a chance that we can be we can be deceived by some clever lie of the devil. When that happens, we don't lose our salvation, mark it down, we don't lose our salvation but we can lose our rewards. And that is what John is concerned about here. That is what he is warning these Christians against. He admonished them and us to watch out that we not be deceived by false doctrine and then embrace it, think it, it's God's truth, begin to share it, promote it, and in the process, many people get stumbled. Okay, There's a lot of heresy in the church that's not damning heresy. 
It's not stuff that will send a person to hell if embraced. Oh, there's enough of that. But there's a lot of stuff that doesn't fall under that category. It's just the kind of false teaching that trips Christians up and neutralizes their walk in effectiveness. If Satan loses you, you're saved. He's not going to ever get you back, I believe. So next best thing is to neutralize your effectiveness. Take you out of the race, you know? You're no longer a threat. How's he going to do that? With false teaching that, uh, that negates your uh, effectiveness, okay? Neutralizes your, uh, your victory in some way. A lot of times it's man-centered. You know, you want to shut down the power of God, move the focus away from God's spirit to yourself. You'll shut down the power. The flow will stop. You'll be on your own now, trying to have victory in your, in your own strength. We talked about that Sunday. But we're not immune from false teaching. Uh, if we know the word, if we know the truth really well, well, it'll greatly guard us against it. Um, but if a Christian does fall into some false teaching, not damning heresy, but just false teaching that is, you know, and, uh, you know, that God wants you wealthy and that, and that becomes the focus, just whatever I can do to have money and I'm laying up for myself treasures on the earth, I'm not really setting my eyes on things above, I'm setting them on things on the earth, that neutralizes my effectiveness for the kingdom. Now I'm just laying up treasures on earth, so to speak. And so, you know, if, if that's the case, you, you're going to lose your salvation if you embrace that, but you will lose some of your rewards. And Paul talks about, beware that you, uh, as he put it, um, don't lose the things we work for. We work to know the truth. Don't lose that by letting these people come in and deceive you with their lies. Uh, because, you know, you, you want to have a full reward when you get to heaven, right? A full reward. You want to have as many rewards as possible, especially if you've worked for them on the earth here. A lot of pastors that work for years, evangelists, work for years uh, serving God, laying up for themselves treasures in heaven, only at the end of their lives to engage in some kind of a, a sin where, Possibly they uh, have a scandalous affair, affair and their ministry is completely destroyed and their witness and people don't even uh, take them seriously anymore and they don't, they don't buy their books or anymore, even though the books are full of good, solid biblical teaching. Coming short of receiving your full reward in heaven was something that haunted Paul. Was something that haunted Paul was one of his greatest fears. I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He said, but I discipline my body. Now he's using the metaphor of an athlete competing, okay? He's using it to run the Christian race. He's, he was, he was an, Paul loved sports, okay? And he used sports metaphors to communicate spiritual truth, all right? And so he, now he brings it to himself. He says, look, uh, I, he said, uh, but I discipline my body to bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. A lot of Christians read that, especially new Christians, they get terrified. Is Paul saying, if I don't continue to live the right kind of life, I'm going to be kicked out of heaven? I'm going to lose my salvation? No. The context is rewards. Rewards. Paul's saying, my biggest fear is after I teach others how to run the race and receive their full rewards that I'm going to do something to mess up and I'm not going to I'm be disqualified from the race myself. won't get my rewards. It's the idea. Look, guys, it's not enough to be a strong starter in your race for Christ. We have to be faithful finishers. That's the key, okay? Faithful finishers as well. You want to finish well, stay close to Jesus. And uh, maybe you could and stay in the Word, right? And uh, we talked about this in a little four-part series we just finished called 2020 Vision for the New Year. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That becomes the vision. That becomes the lens through which we look at the whole year and beyond, okay? Um, it's all about being proactive, not reactive. Um, setting goals, um, you know, mapping out like here's what i want to accomplish i want to get closer to god i want to love god and and then you read in scripture how to go about that we tried to outline that over the last four weeks now listen to me this is important 
while it's true that a Christian can be deceived, listen, by some non-essential doctrine and lose some rewards, it's also true that they will never, a true Christian will never be deceived when it comes to the doctrine of Jesus Christ himself. Only a false Christian can be deceived when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, who he is, what he did. Did he actually come in a physical body? You know, that kind of thing. Only a false Christian can be deceived about the true nature of Jesus Christ. We can, we can, true Christians can argue at the timing of the rapture, are the gifts of the Holy Spirit still in operation today, and so on and so forth. All true Christians, I don't care if you're a Presbyterian, I don't care if you're a Baptist, I don't care if you go to Calvary Chapel, all true Christians in the body of Christ, we all agree on the doctrine of Christ. We all, that's, we, that's non-negotiable, we all agree on that. Because the Spirit of God is inside of us. We can differ on non-essentials. But we will never stumble when it comes to the doctrine of Christ. That's Paul, uh, John's point here, all right? And this is something that John felt the need to address again. Verse 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, listen, does not have God. They're not a Christian. He who abides, the Greek word means remains, continues, in the doctrine of Christ, doesn't waver, doesn't begin to think, oh, well, maybe he's really not the Son of God. Maybe he didn't come in a physical body. John is saying, if, if, if that's where you're coming from, you, you claim to be a Christian and, and so on, but now you're doubting who Christ is and what he did? Did he rise from the dead bodily or was he a phantom? That kind of thing. Um, John says, you don't know the Lord. You don't know the Lord. True Christians abide in that truth with regard to Christ. Um, he who abides remains, continues, and the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. They're truly saved, okay? The word transgresses there in verse 9. Whoever transgresses contains, is a Greek word that contains the idea of going beyond a boundary. Going beyond a boundary. Again, true Christians never go beyond the doctrinal boundary concerning the doctrine of Christ. What is the doctrinal boundary? It's what the Bible says about Jesus. We don't grab uh, other information from other sources, right? When we formulate our opinions on doctrines, especially the most important doctrine in the Bible, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, we don't take the Bible and then the Book of Mormon or, you know, keys to the scriptures by whoever she was, you know, Ellen White or whatever, right? It's just the word of God. Just the word of God. That's very important. That is the doc. Whoever goes beyond the boundary transgresses. Willfully steps outside the truth of God to get grab truth, quote unquote, from some other source. That is also how the cults work. Okay? Bible is not sufficient. Gnostics, yeah, yeah, the Bible. Good. Yeah, it's good. Okay, but we have information and knowledge that doesn't even it's not even found in the bible the apostles didn't even know about this stuff we'll teach you how to meditate just the right way you'll learn secret hidden mysteries of wisdom and knowledge uh, red flag and john and all the others including christ himself warned us about this all right all right verse 10 if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the doctrine, the true doctrine of Christ, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Some Christians interpret this to mean that if a Jehovah's Witness shows up at your door, you are forbidden in Scripture right here from inviting them into your house even if you want to witness to them. Now look, if that's your conviction on the subject I respect that, and by all means, stay true to it. I don't personally feel that's what John is saying, okay? I believe that what John, when John said to this elect lady, this Christian gal, that she was not to let those or these false teachers into her house, uh, that he had in mind not to invite them into her house, listen, when the church was meeting there. In other words, don't invite these heretics 
into your church is the idea. Look, whether we're talking about you opening your home to a small group, which we have now, right? And, and, and whether, whether you're the house host and you've got a bunch of Christians coming over uh, for a small group every week, and there's some character at work that's a JW, and you think he's got some interesting things to say. Well, why don't I invite him over to our house group? No, John says. Don't, because in any church, if you're a pastor, my goodness, don't invite them into your pulpit. Well, I think they have some interesting things to say. Let's hear them. Maybe we can convert them, right? No. Because in any church setting, you have some good, strong, uh, mature believers. They're not going to be deceived, probably. You have very young believers. Or even people that are just the Holy Spirit's been working on, and they're now wide open. They're coming to the, your church, and they, they want to know the truth. And here you let so-and-so, Brother uh, Mormon from down the street there, uh, come in and spout all his... They don't have any discernment. They're thinking, well, that sounds pretty... That sounds logical. I, I think I'm going to be a Mormon. You're partaking in their evil deeds. Don't be deceived, and don't facilitate... Give a platform to these heretics in the name of Christian love because we want to show them how we love them. And, and, you know, and the truth will set them free. They come in by us. We'll love on them. And we'll give them the Bible. We'll quote scripture. And we'll win them over. I had a pastor friend, and I'll end with this. Him and his wife were good-hearted people. Good-hearted people. And they worked tirelessly for the Lord. They, they really did. And um, never doubted their commitment to the Lord. Never doubted their love for the Lord. Discernment, wisdom, lacking. What happened was, a few years back, there was a cult in the area where he was pastoring. Now, he knew they were a cult. All right, He knew the name of the cult. And one day, a few of them showed up at his Sunday service. And, and he knew who they were and what they believed. But he let them stay because he, he told me this later. That he believed that by the teaching of the word, it would overcome the darkness and set them free. And so over the course of the next few weeks, maybe a couple, three months, these folks began to multiply. They invited other friends, and pretty much not half the churches, this cult. Well, what he didn't know is they were meeting with people in the church for lunch, dinner, going out and doing stuff together. And all the while, they were teaching these, these sheep false doctrine. Some of them wound up coming over to the cult. I don't know if they were ever really saved. Maybe they came for a while and left and got right with I don't know. It destroyed the church. The church was destroyed. You can be sincere. You can be sincerely wrong. The word of God is living and powerful. But the lies of the devil are also very powerful. And we don't expose the sheep many of whom are very young, or maybe they're just getting warmed up to the idea of the gospel. They're not saved yet. You do not expose them to heresy. I, I, one church invited in, and had a whole big church thing, and invited in uh, the, this cult uh, and debated with this Christian, and they thought that was a great idea, just to debate on stage on a Sunday morning, and all, well, okay. And yet... Again, Sunday morning, you have new believers, unbelievers. And the devil used what the cult person had to say because it makes a lot of sense, a lot of that heresy, you know. And, and, and so that split the church also. You know, John was a smart guy. He was a spirit-filled man, a shepherd. And he realized you don't invite the wolves into the sheepfold to have a barbecue you know you don't give them the passcode on the church sheepfold because when you're not there they're going to e -e 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 -e, come right in and you know devour the sheep 
We gotta use common sense. We gotta use our heads a little bit. That's what John is warning. And this lady might have done this. She might have been very sincere. She might have been one of those Christians who was, uh, you know, God's love will overcome everything. And, and, and she opened her And John says, don't do that again. Don't do it again. I know you want to show love, hospitality. You don't do that with a, a, a person who's teaching heresy. Okay, let's finish. Verse 12. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Now, if the elect lady that he addressed this epistle to was a real lady, I think she was, then maybe John actually did know her sister. Or maybe a close sister in Christ. And she said, John, I know you're writing to that church. Will you say hi for me? Okay. You can take it for whatever you want. Okay. It's not that important that we figure that out. But uh, all right. You didn't think I could do it, did you? <laughs> I know you're thinking he'll never make it. All right. All right. God willing, next week we'll do third John. Jude, I can't promise you. That's not going to be one night. Uh, there's a lot there. Okay. And then Revelation. So may God give us grace. Father, we thank you. For your word, your word is truth. Give us grace, Lord, to, uh, to know it, to understand it, and by wisdom to apply it. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you for men like the Apostle John and women, men and women who love you, who love the sheep, who are uh, teaching Sunday school classes or women's studies or pastoring, men pastoring uh, churches or whatever. Thank you that you have so many that love your word, are good role models. We ask that you give us all grace to be that, to be hungry for the word, uh, faithfully sharing it with others, to be a, an example to the sheep. Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.